Cozy Robots, I'm Mike McCarg. And I'm Grace Vaughn. And welcome to the Cozy Robot Show, and we are in a really special time called Super Science Summer. Uh, this summer, uh, not only do we have a little more relaxed schedule with the show coming every other week instead of every week as normal, we're going back to our roots, doing some throwback episodes, and we will be handling science topics all throughout the summer so you can grow your science understanding and uh, unsmooth brain yourself from the pandemic <laughs> lockdowns by learning new and fun things about science. And this week we're going to be doing space, space travel, space something. All space related, outer All space. space related. Uh, if you don't know, Grace not only co-hosts the show, she is uh, the Cozy Robot Show producer. So when you're like, how do we get these topics? Where do these questions come from? How does the show happen? It's all Grace. I mean, we could, we, we could really oh, call gosh. it the Grace Vaughn Show <laughs> with Mike McCarg. <laughs> oh my gosh! Too kind, too kind, and and there and is true. a whole team behind me. There's a whole team. That's true. And there's there's even there's even more people involved. But thank you, thank you, Mike. Um, yeah, you so know, as I Mike gotta said, tell you. Uh, oh, go ahead. I feel a lot better. I'm realizing, like today, is the first day since I got COVID. That I just kind of feel like me again. That's awesome. And I'm almost like slap happy because it's like what, you know, like when you're sick and then you finally feel better. It almost like normal feels like, like blissful almost. Do you know what mm -hmm. I mean? It's like, oh, wow, I'm not in pain. And oh, wow, I can take a deep uh. breath. And oh, my gosh, I can think if I want to think and I'm not sleepy. Like, oh, just really. Oh, my gosh. Really excited I'm, to do this. I'm glad to hear that. And I'm sure everyone is uh, relieved to hear that as well. Uh, yeah, that's what, how I was going to open up. I was going to ask you how you're doing, Mike. And, um, uh, as you have been recovering from COVID recently, and I'm so glad to hear that today is one of those days where you're feeling better. And because in comparison, like feeling normal in comparison to having COVID is mm -hmm. like euphoric and yeah. <laughs> feels almost like a dream state. You. You know, I had I had Delta Plus, which is like the woo variant, like whoa, like not just mm -hmm. Delta, but Delta Plus, which has mm -hmm. an additional mutation. Um, very, 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 very contagious. I mean, numbers came out over the weekend that uh, Delta is the variant is like one of the most contagious respiratory viruses we've ever encountered, and with science, it's like it's more contagious than smallpox. So it's very, very, oh, very contagious, goodness. which means we're going to have probably a rough ride from now until the fall for mm -hmm. unvaccinated people all over the world. Uh, I will say as a vaccinated person, boy, these vaccines are great. I'm so glad I had the vaccine because with all of my health conditions, I was not hospitalized. I was not on a ventilator. Um, and I'm, you know, I'm bouncing back and I would tell you, you know, three-fourths of people in my house had COVID, and I'm the only one who had anything resembling like a challenging case, both Jenny and Macy, my daughter. Uh, they just like kind of felt a little, little icky for a couple days and then kind of bounced right back. So mm -hmm. if you're not vaccinated yet, please think about it. Not because I'm trying to take away your freedoms or something, but because like they help. They, they're low risk, uh, and they really... Um, even with Delta being so contagious and then we have these breakthrough cases, they make them mild. It makes COVID a thing that 
you get over from uh, as opposed to potentially have either death or lifelong impairment from. So uh, if you're not vaccinated, think about it. Now's the time because you, you really want like you want to get your <laughs> yeah. shot like today to right. beat this Delta wave that I'm telling you, September, October in the U.S. is going to be it's going to be a wild ride. But that's not what we're talking about today. I don't want to go into COVID land and bum everybody out because uh, we're talking about one of my favorite, absolute favorite topics in science, which is space. We're talking about outer space. And a couple, I guess it was, must have been about a week ago, I sent out a generic question. Send us your cues about outer space. And since then, we have received, Mike knows, so many questions about outer space. So many cool, informed, and funny, and just awesome questions about outer space. Can't wait to hear what Mike has to say. Thank you all so much for sending in your questions. I compiled them all. We're not going to get to all of them today, but this is the uh, super science summer on the Cozy Robot Show. So coming up soon, your question might be super science summer. So if your question is not uh, read aloud and discussed and answered on this episode, tune in for a later episode. It might be discussed then. All right, Mike, without further ado, let's get into a question I'm dying to hear you answer. Uh, At Court Purnell on Instagram asks, if you got a free ride to space, would you go there? Oh, my gosh. Probably. I've gone from an absolute yes my whole life to a probably now. Interesting. Uh, only because like uh my physical health i would probably need to in- if i it's an absolute yes if i had enough time to go through a full training regimen that included like some physical conditioning and weight training i would need to increase my body's muscle mass and probably increase my cardiovascular fitness for a ride to space to be safe for me you have to accelerate really fast to get out of earth's gravity well so if it was anything, even a suborbital trip, but if it was a proper orbital trip, much less like going to the moon or something, you're going to be subjected to, you know, six Gs, in some cases maybe up to 10 Gs, six to 10 times the weight of gravity. That would be like in the rocket for several minutes, having six people who weigh as much as you kind of lying on your chest, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and that means you got to be pretty physically fit to pull that off. And I don't think... Uh, given that post-COVID here and post-pandemic, I had to sit on a stool to do some minor yard work this weekend, mm. uh, that I would be in physical, uh, I would have the physical capacity to safely make uh, an, you know, a rocket ride into orbit. Uh, but given that, absolutely, no question, free ride to space, I'm in. Um that's something that's so audacious it's not even on my bucket list, but it's certainly, a, <laughs> I guess, a fantasy of mine would be to uh, to see the Earth from space. It's funny because when I watched Sa- – Sandra Bullock was in a movie called Gravity, I think, is what it was called. Yes. And I will not give any spoilers, uh, but at one point she does say, I hate space. And it, it resonated because space – I don't know what is worse, and I would love to see live in the comments. What is more horrifying, open water or, like, the ocean or space? Being stranded in either of those areas gives me the heebie-jeebies. 
Oh, you'd way rather be stranded in open water than space? Yeah, probably. Probably. No I quite, might like, have, like, neither of those places scare me. When you add the stranded element, you would you would way rather be stranded in the ocean than even low right. Earth orbit. You're because you're like a little you can bit just more keep acquainted. Breathing. Right. Uh, in <laughs> the ocean. Like, like you're just going to breathe. Now, water becomes an issue on the ocean, of course, pretty quickly. Uh, hmm. But, you know, uh, I guess, like, I don't know. And then whether I'd be trapped on, like, the International Space Station or out to sea, it's going to depend on what provisions you have. Anyway, uh, you're going to get me really deep into like, no, I'm survival science on that stuff. Uh, but I love both. I also, you know, don't let movies like Gravity. Uh, which um, might be a good film, but is not a good primer on how space travel or gravity work. <laughs> okay. Uh, that is All not right. a movie that would get five out of five sciences uh, from me mm-hmm. in terms of scientific <laughs> accuracy. Um, so, uh, like, there was just thing after thing after thing. I'm like, did they talk to even a single person who's heard of NASA? Like, <laughs> it was mm-hmm. pretty bad. Um <laughs> Uh, but yeah, no, obviously space isn't like uh, hospitable to human life. We evolved on earth and are very well suited to life on earth. And so, mm-hmm. um, you'd have a better chance in general yeah, oh, as yeah. long as you're like somewhere closer to land. Literally pretty much anywhere on the surface of the earth is preferable to anywhere that's not the surface of the earth first piece. Like, you know what I mean? You'll do better on the top of Mount Everest (laughs) than you will on the most balmy corner of Mars, right? (laughs) Or the coolest spot on Venus. Uh, Oh, my gosh. The comments coming in are very funny. Uh, Caleb says, space is scary, yo. Caleb, wiser words have never been uh, texted to us. Larry says, either seems like likely death when stranded, but I'd rather do space for the novelty of it. That's kind of exciting. A fun tombstone for Larry. Ryan says, (laughs) died in space. Ryan says, stranded in space versus stranded in the midnight zone underwater. According to Mike, it sounds like you'd probably want to go with the midnight zone over. Oh, the midnight zone? Like if (gasps) in either of those without protective equipment, you're you're not stranded. You're just dead. You're just because of the <laughs> what? Because of the pressure, right? Because you're under. Because you're so deep. You're the so pressure, far down. and also you're underwater. <laughs> you, can't, <laughs> you can't breathe in the midnight zone or in space. And this with is our the episode species, we learned that Grace like, doesn't understand that you without air, like it. Right. You know, it, it, it's it's a bit of a moot point. Well, it's, speaking, it's, of- it's the rule of three. You can't go without air for uh, three minutes. Water for three days, uh, food for uh, three weeks. So that kind of lets you know oh. your like level of survival need. You need air all the time. Like you can't. <laughs> right, right. There's no like a couple days you can so spare. If, you, if you're in a situation where um, the, the reason they talk about this, the first thing you worry about is if your air spike. It's like in a house fire. You don't worry about like grabbing some food on the way out. You just get out. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. That's why that that rubric exists. Anyway, well, obviously, I study survivalism. So <laughs> we, I maybe that's the upcoming science episode, the science of survival. I would love that. I think um, 
others would as well. Speaking of scientific accuracy, we have a lot of questions based on the uh, the factual nature of science uh, space. Okay. At I'm going to say your handle. Nicoulier, I believe is how it's pronounced, on Instagram asks, what exactly is a galaxy? Mike, what is a galaxy? I don't, I do not know. A large arrangement of stars and gases bound together by gravity as a galaxy. Um, There you go. Actually, you might want to say huge instead of large. Anytime you have some number of stars and interstellar gases that are held together by gravitational attraction, you have a galaxy. That's what they are. Um, which hmm. means if you have, you know, two cluster or two groups of stars, um, that there's a dividing line where you basically have a, a center point of uh, gravitational attraction or, or, or orbital path for one group, and that doesn't intersect with the other group. You have two distinct gravities, even if they're relatively close together. Uh, and mm. gravi- that can change. At some point in the distant future, uh, the Milky Way galaxy is going to merge with the Andromeda galaxy. We are headed for a collision course. Oh. And we will become a single galaxy because we'll, all those stars will become gravitationally bound. And you're like, oh my gosh, is the Milky Way going to be destroyed? Nope. Galaxies mm. are huge. So it is very unlikely as the Milky Way and Andromeda merge together that even a single set of two stars will collide with each other. Uh, wow. And obviously because of the scale of galaxies, that merger process will take a long, long time. <laughs> well, I'm happy to hear that. I would li- I'd like to not be around for any... Uh, uh, the good news is none of us will be around for the merger of the Milky Way and Andromeda. That is happening on cosmic time, not human time. Uh, our star, uh, the sun, probably will still be around. I don't know. I'd, I'd actually have to look that up, but it'll be mm. a while. Well, that's reassuring. So it's it's in the billions of years, not the thousands. We won't be a worry for us then, unless, of course, in our lifetimes, we are made into cyborgs. Uh, possibly <laughs> another topic for another little transhumanism. Day. All right. Okay. <laughs> All right. Uh, next question. Rebecca Stivers on Instagram asks, does time actually move slower in space? Can you explain how that works? If so, time does not move more slowly in space. Movies lied um, to us, Rebecca. That is a Rebecca. common misnomer. However, time dilation, the fact that time can pass at different rates in different reference frames, is real and true. And we get that from Einstein's theory of relativity. Uh, and so what we understand from relativity is not that space slows down time to an observer, but, uh, but that time flows more slowly in a reference frame that is moving faster when compared to another reference frame. That's not plain English. But uh, here's what it means. <laughs> Space isn't up. So if you took a rocket and you flew straight up miles above the Earth and less the Earth's atmosphere and then turned the engines off, what would happen? You would fall straight back down to the Earth and crash. <laughs> you wouldn't mm. orbit the Earth. Because orbiting the Earth is falling sideways. It's free-falling sideways around a gravity well. So, uh, okay. 
And so that means you have to go really, really fast, something like 17,000 and a half miles an hour for a low Earth orbit. It's fast. Um, And when that happens, you're free falling. That's why you experience weightlessness. It's not that there's not gravity up there. It's the same way that if, like, you've ever been on, you know, uh, a free fall ride at a theme park, you feel weightless. It's because you're falling as fast as gravity. So you fall as fast as gravity sideways to orbit. And then when you're moving that fast, time does slow down for you a little bit. Um, you know, someone did the math for Chris Hadfield, who spent a lot of time in space, and basically he he has gained some number of seconds compared to if he would have stayed on the Earth from being in space so much in his life. It's wow. called time dilation. It gets more extreme the faster you go as a percentage of the speed of light. So you can imagine that at very high speeds, if you you know if you had two twins and one got on a spaceship and they left the Earth going. A very high percentage of the speed of light, and they flew away for a little while. And they flew back, and then they landed. There might be a, a five or a six or a thirty or a hundred year age difference between those two twins, based on the dilation of time. Now, why does that happen? Gravity can do that as well. By the way, if you get too close to a black hole, uh, time dilation occurs in the same way that happens when you move very fast. It's because space and time are part of a single fabric called space time uh that gets bent and warped both by uh gravity and and the behavior of matters which by the way photons are weird because they move the speed of light they have no mass um or very low mass no mass uh and uh they have inertia but no mass so they're moving really really fast which means if a photon could experience time it wouldn't to a photon everything happens instantly uh, they they would not experience any reference time. Although, how would a photon experience time is, is kind of a nonsense question in physics. But <laughs> if they could, they wouldn't. Because when you move light speed, you lose any any uh, reference frame time passage. So you just touched on, I think I heard you say something about, I might be wrong. I think I heard you say something about a black hole just now and time as it, if you get close to a black hole because of the intense warping of space-time from the gravity of a black hole, you experience time dilation if you get very near the event horizon, which you don't want to do. It's very dangerous to get near I the have a question from Gordon Halleck on Instagram who okay. asks, could you explain the difference between a wormhole and a black hole? Well, we'll start with the similarities. They both have the word hole in the title, and that's the only <laughs> similarity between black holes and wormholes. Black holes are not theoretical. We know black holes exist. We've imaged them in space. We've measured their effects. A black hole is a any amount of matter that gets so dense that the gravitational pull from that object is intense enough that light can't get away from it. So the area around a black hole, which a black hole itself we call a singularity, that's what's inside a a black hole. Singularity is a physics word for, huh, we don't know what that is. (laughs) Uh, So a singularity, we don't know what black holes are. We just know they're very dense matter. And if you get too close to one, you can't pass back out. There's not enough energy in the universe to get you past that boundary again. So a photon or any matter that passes the event horizon is now trapped in there with that black hole 
I'd say forever, but their black holes technically evaporate through something called Hawking radiation. We're not going to get into that. That's very complicated. Uh, it'll be more confusing. But a black hole is just a really dense part of space. How are they made? Usually big stars die. They explode in something called a supernova, and they eject a lot of mass, and the mass that kind of doesn't make it out has been very dense and collapses in on itself. It gets so dense, uh, again, it becomes a black hole. Technically, you can make anything a black hole if you compress it enough. <clears throat> you could turn a person into a very, very, very small black hole. It wouldn't last very long because it would mm. hawking radiate out very quickly. The Earth could be made into a black hole. Uh, it would be tiny. I don't remember exactly the threshold uh, for the Earth to be a black hole. I recall it being something like the size of a pea, but that might Whoa. be orders of magnitude too large. Um, mm. So black holes are very, very small and very, very massive. Massive meaning having high mass, not massive colloquially meaning big. That's a black hole. A wormhole is theoretical. We have a lot of uh, physical modeling for them in different... Uh, cosmological and theoretical physical models. We've never like observed a wormhole. Some physicists believe that a wormhole may be the mechanism of action behind like quantum entanglement. And as we understand wormholes right now, they're little shortcuts where four-dimensional space-time kind of folds in on itself and allows you to move between two points without passing uh, the pieces of space and time in between. Uh, right now, they're theorized to only be a quantum action, meaning they're not big enough to like put anything meaningful through. Uh, okay. But some physicists think in some models, if you had enough energy, you could make a wormhole. Now, let's be important, or let's understand, because wormholes are holes in three-dimensional space, three-spatial dimension and one temporal dimension space. They wouldn't be holes, a hole in a piece of paper is a circle. That's two-dimensional space. Mm -hmm. A hole in three-dimensional space is a sphere. So if you saw a wormhole, what you would see a sphere heck? in space, not a <clears throat> hole. Oh. Um, and uh, uh, actually, one of the best depictions of both black holes and wormholes we've ever seen, not only in film but in science, is the film Interstellar. They got a very famous physicist named Kip Thorne to be an advisor on that film. And they actually devised like new science to depict accurately black holes and wormholes in that film from a visual perspective and actually published some papers based on it. So if you'd like to see <laughs> so cool. wormholes and black holes in a film that nailed that and got some of the other science really bad, uh, check out Interstellar to see what wormholes and black holes look like. Also check out an earlier Cozy Robot Show uh, episode where we did the science of movies. I think we got somewhere upwards of 25 questions about Interstellar. And Mike goes into talking about Interstellar and other science-related movies. So if you want to check that out, you absolutely can. No way. Um, okay. Speaking of science movies, here's one that we didn't touch in that episode I just mentioned. ML Weddle on Instagram asks, what would the Death Star explosion have looked like if it had been scientifically accurate? I can't say. Because there's too many unknowns about the Death Star. So to answer a question like that <clears throat> accurately, people like Randall Monroe does a series called What If, where people ask science questions. And then Randall will take the reader through like the assumptions he made 
in order to answer the question and then the math he did to produce the results. Mm. There's no like intuitive way with no prep. Mm -hmm. I can tell you what <laughs> right. happened with when the Death Star exploded. Um, mm -hmm. We can make some assumptions. I can tell you how I would go about doing that. I would start with, well, one, we know that a Death Star can project enough mass energy to cause a planet to explode. That's a lot of mass energy. I mean, that's a, a lot. That's like like a, a directed supernova's level of energy. Um, so one would assume there is some kind of exotic energy apparatus that powers the Death Star. I don't know if it's like a very powerful fusion reactor where they have like their own mini compressed star in the center of that thing. I didn't see that depicted in the film. Maybe it is an extremely focused matter-antimatter reaction. Are they they creating a stream of plasma and gamma radiation? You know, so we'd start by saying, like, what could cause the effect we've seen on screen? And then what would a failure state look like? So you can imagine, like, if the Death Star created heck a stream of antimatter at the planet, which would cause a huge explosion. That would be very dangerous to the Death Star itself. A really easy way to get the Death Star to blow would be to destroy the containment for the antimatter, which would then react with the matter of the Death Star, and you would get an extremely violent explosion. Uh, and and what I'm positing, I haven't built a model, as I just said, but I'll, what I'd be checking my hypothesis would be the first state you would see from something like the Death Star explosion would be like what you see with like a fusion bomb which is an intense release of light and probably gamma radiation from a Death Star. I would imagine if you were in range to witness a Death Star explosion, you would also be in range to be destroyed by it uh, because Ooh. all that energy would be released out. Now, it would, it would dissipate according to the inverse square law. I'm doing a bad job of making these questions accessible today. No, I'm, Regardless, I'm you would probably see an intense bright light that if you looked at it you would be blind either permanently or, or, or temporarily and wouldn't see what happened next but likely that in that level of a of an explosion there wouldn't be like a lot of debris left it would be uh, a cloud of of vaporized material uh, again because the energy levels we're talking about are so high but I don't know that because I, I didn't just do science. I did the first part of science, <laughs> <I didn't> science just... <laughs> which is coming up with a hypothesis. The next thing right. would be to build a model and then, of course, ultimately to test it. But uh, obviously we can't do a test case for blowing up a Death Star because we can't build a Death Star, which puts us in the realm of really kind of like theoretical physics. Anything goes. Well, it's not, not anything goes. Broadway you still have to build music. a model. You have to test it. You have to you have to have some drawings. But that that kind of is the difference between physics and theoretical physics. Physics you can still run tests, and theoretical physics deal with parts of physics that are so far from our engineering capacity that we can't even test ideas. Mm. And we just have to use math. Well, I have. I forgot how fun it was just to answer science questions. <laughs> you're 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 back in the groove, back in the saddle. It's. It's great to watch and I'm learning so much and I can't wait to hear your answer for this next one. This is the question that Mike is going to answer right before our break and we'll be right back after this, but it's a biggie. Caleb on Twitter asks, 
what is the true value of space exploration? I've always wondered what what's in it for us down here. Everything in space seems so far out of reach and just an enormous waste of time and money, especially when we could all be allocating funds to preserve life on Earth. Thanks, Mike. My favorite thing about space exploration is the way it brings people together. If you go back and look at footage of people witnessing the Apollo program, the first time people set foot on the moon, people were riveted all over the world. Uh, when you would see big events happen on the International Space Station, when Curiosity set down on Mars, the biggest rover we'd ever sent to another planet, people were riveted. And some people, a small number of people would say, is this worth the money? Most people were just inspired. Whole generations of engineers and of scientists were inspired to enter into STEM, science, technology, engineering, and math, because of the space program. And I've noticed recently, very recently, last last couple of weeks, this question, like, is space travel worth it, has been what everyone is talking about. Mm -hmm. What's the difference? Well, this time, two billionaires went to space. <laughs> and I'm is. serious. When we all work together through a government to accomplish something amazing, people are proud. When the wealthiest among us flaunt their privilege by going to a place no one else can afford to go, that's demoralizing, and that's not what space travel is about. I have no interest in billionaire and wealthy playground space programs because that's not what space travel is for. So I understand like space travel seems really expensive. In, in our daily lives and our daily living, Space seems expensive, but space is not a major expenditure for world governments. It's just not. And there are opportunities for private enterprise to improve the space program. You know, NASA, people at NASA will complain about the space launch system, a very expensive, very delayed rocket program that Congress keeps making NASA do that NASA doesn't want to do because they know they could get the same lift capacity more efficiently from SpaceX. It's not that I'm against private companies participating in public space programs. It's I'm against the privatization fundamentally of space because space belongs to us all. And when we look at like how much it costs to go to space, um, it does seem like you could do a lot on Earth for what it costs to spend, send a, a robot to Mars. I mean, that, is, that ends up being a couple billion dollars to get a robot to Mars. But when we look at what governments spend money on, space is a tiny fraction of where the money goes. And I don't think we have to choose between housing and health care for human people and space exploration. Where government money is going is things like defense spending. You know, we want to talk about expensive. The F-35 Lightning II program, that's a fighter jet that the American government built, was a $1.5 trillion that's what the t dollar program oh my god for one plane that the military <laughs> doesn't love Good. now that sounds like a lot of money <laughs> well what about like the studies have shown like what do we end up doing in terms of fossil fuel subsidies what do what value do fossil fuels company get from the public in the form of direct and indirect subsidy that's estimated to be around five trillion dollars Five trillion dollars. So when space, which I'm going to talk about the benefits of space travel in a second, and they are they are they are huge. Um, 
are we getting what we're paying for in military spending or fossil fuel subsidies? I don't think so. And I'd rather us talk about defense spending and fossil fuel subsidies than like, oh my gosh, space is too expensive. Because space actually helps us several ways. Number one, uh, one study at George Washington University's Space Policy Institute found that for every dollar taxpayers invest in NASA, between 7 and $21 is returned to the U.S. economy. Hmm. NASA generates new ideas and new technologies and keeps them in the public domain. And uh, because of that, NASA generates more economic activity than we spend. That's a positive return on investment. Uh, NASA helps us study the Earth. Going to space helps us understand the Earth. Why is that important? Without space travel and space exploration, we wouldn't understand climate change. We wouldn't have good models of climate change. We wouldn't understand temperatures very well because the best way to accurately assess what's happening on the Earth is to get a little further away from it and then look back. So as one of the most existential issues facing our species is climate change, space exploration helps us understand and address climate change by helping us build better models and make better predictions and understand what our options are in order to improve our climate outlook in the future. Uh, space exploration also helps us develop like really key technologies we use in our everyday lives. Uh, do you like having Apple Maps or Google Maps on your phone? That requires GPS satellites. That requires a robust understanding not only of relativity, but also the ability to put objects in a relativistic orbit around the Earth. So, um, Space really benefits us, uh, space exploration. Space exploration generates more money in our economy than it takes to do it. And there are far more expensive, far more dangerous bits of spending in our economies already than space travel, like fossil fuel subsidies and large-scale defense spending. Again, I don't have a problem spending on defense like in a in a, in a a smart way, like you know, like if we're gonna have soldiers in our countries, like we really should spend on taking care of them, both while they're soldiers and afterwards. You're not gonna ever hear me say we should be cutting soldiers' salaries or benefits, but like really expensive pork programs to develop new hardware that the military says they don't want that Congress just keeps shoving down the military's throat. Let's talk about that before we talk about cutting space spending and. We're going to talk about how we spend in space. Let's talk about things like the Space Launch System, where Congress is forcing NASA to build a rocket that NASA doesn't want or need at the cost of billions of dollars. So space travel, good. The way we spend on space travel, eh, could be improved. The way we spend on fossil fuel companies and large defense projects, let's cut that immediately. And yeah, let's spend here on Earth to make people's quality of life better. Mike McHarg drop. <laughs> and that brings us to uh, commercials. Time for right. promos. We'll be right back. We couldn't make the Cozy Robot Show without the help of our sponsors. This week, I'd like to tell you about two of my favorites. The first is BetterHelp. This podcast is sponsored by BetterHelp Online Therapy. And if you'd like to learn more about BetterHelp, just go to uh, check out betterhelp.com slash cozy robot. Uh, the world is full of stressors, full of difficulties, full of challenges. 
we're kind of reopening. We kind of have another wave of COVID coming. We have all kinds of family stress. We have all kinds of social stress. It is a difficult time to live right now. We have personal stressors. We have societal and social stressors. And uh, that adds up. So whether or not you're feeling down or depressed or like you're at a total loss, uh, people are feeling stressed. The way you notice that is you might have a shorter temper than usual. Uh, you might feel like uh, more tired than usual. You might have trouble paying attention or concentrating. There's all kinds of ways in which stress impacts our mental health. Well, BetterHelp can help with that. They're a customized online therapy service that offers video chats, phone conversations, and even live chat sessions with a therapist, a licensed therapist. So you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to, but you can if you do. You don't have to worry about finding a parking space. All of your appointments are virtual, and it's much more affordable than in-person therapy. And you can start communicating with a therapist that BetterHelp finds for you in under 48 hours. So you can unload the stressors of your life with someone who cares and get some unbiased feedback and do some troubleshooting and some strategizing on ways that you could make changes in your life that help you live a more satisfying life that is less impacted by stress. And you can see if it's for you because uh, uh, BetterHelp uh, is offering Cozy Robot Show listeners 10% off their first month at BetterHelp.com slash Cozy Robot. Again, that's B-E-T-T-E-R-H-E-L-P dot com slash Cozy Robot. I'd also like to tell you this week about KiwiCo, an absolutely delightful company that makes learning about steam fun. And I don't mean steam as in a hot water vapor. <laughs> I mean steam as in science, technology, engineering, art, and math. KiwiCo is a California company that creates crates that get mailed to you every month that teach new concepts in STEAM. Every line gets delivered right to your doorstep every month and caters to different age groups from babies to teens on up into adults and let you choose a variety of topics and subscription links. Now, every box comes with everything you need to do that month's project, which means no extra runs to the store. Detailed kid-friendly instructions are included and an enriching magazine filled with content to learn even more about that crate's unique theme. They are tons of fun. My kids love Kiwi Crates. I love Kiwi Crates. Even my uh, wife loves to do Kiwi Co. Crates. They're just really fun. You'll learn a lot. My kids have told me that uh, they feel more confident in school when a topic comes up they've done a crate on. And it also stops all the screen times. So... Uh, absolutely wonderful. It's everything you need to make Steam seriously fun, delivered to your doorstep. You can get your first month free, that's right, free on select crates by visiting kiwico.com slash cozy robots. That's K-I-W-I-C-O dot com slash cozy robots. Mike. You have hit us with some pretty heavy things to think about. And so I'm going to throw a a bit of a, I don't know sports enough well enough to make this uh, reference. A knuckleball. Uh, 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 well, actually, it's it, it, a knuckleball is like difficult, right? This one yes. is, this one, I, this is like a soft, what would you call I that? See. Like a, an underhand toss to a, a young, a toddler. Okay. All right, here we go. Or maybe I was just it's hard. I, I knew knuckleball. I've been studying baseball. 
Also, I just, I just built this up to be an easy question, but maybe it's difficult. I don't know. At Savvy underscore R Skirto on Instagram asks, what, Mike McHarg, is your favorite planet? Earth. I mean, it is as we look. It makes total sense. As we look into it. space, like we've never seen a planet like Earth. We see planets like Mars and Venus and Jupiter, and I mean, but Earth is pretty special. Uh, <laughs> if, it, if I have to exclude Earth, would you let me get away with a moon? Go with the moon. Planet, because I'll let it, then it would probably either Titan or Europa. Both are fascinating to me. Titan is interesting because. Its atmosphere is roughly the same pressure level as Earth. Uh, it is very cold. Um, liquid water on um, Titan would be like lava here compared to the environment. Whoa, uh, on a moon? Titan is so cold that, yeah, Titan is so cold that there are rivers and lakes of methane, uh, which, oh. as you know, methane is cryogenic, very hard to keep cold here. But in theory, if you like, if you had like an oxygen tank and a warm enough outfit, you could walk around on Titan, kind of like you would on Everest or something. Like, uh, you wouldn't actually need like a a um, a pressure vessel because there's the right atmospheric pressure. So that's really interesting to me. And then Europa is really interesting because it's an icy moon, and we suspect mm. uh, because of the gravitational action. Um, heating up its center it's a thick icy layer over what we believe to be a liquid ocean so it's possible if you went Whoa. if you got down through europa's considerably uh thick outer husk we might find even like life down there in the same way you find life on earth out of the range of the sun's rays that feed on thermal vents there's whole ecosystems down there so yeah. uh, europa is a really leading contender for finding life in our solar system uh, which interesting, we're about to send something called the Europa Clipper to Europa on a on a SpaceX Falcon Heavy. Um, that was a big big news that came out over the weekend. I believe that uh, Congress approved NASA using a Falcon Heavy instead of waiting on the space launch system, uh, which is a big deal. What so we're is about a, to visit Europa? What is a Falcon Heavy? So there's a company called SpaceX, owned by a guy named Elon Musk, uh, uh, who yes. I have mixed feelings about. I've heard uh, of this. But SpaceX is an amazing company, and they have a, a reusable line of rockets called the Falcon, um, where they you can launch a rocket and then land it and reuse it, which brings down the cost of space travel. And the Falcon Heavy is a, a multi-fuselage, heavy payload version of um, the Falcon rocket. Now, the point of a heavy rocket is either to get something bigger into space or something small farther into space and uh and so a falcon heavy has enough um energy i'm trying to avoid using rocket science terms mm. to get something the size of the europa clipper all the way to europa um yeah wow well you touched on the next question i'm about to ask you which is a classic whenever we talk about outer space on the Cozy Robot Show. This question tends to peek its head above the rest at the Pilgrim Geek on Instagram asks, what are the odds of sentient life comparable to human beings in our universe? Uh, we don't know is the easy question, easy answer. 
there, you know, there's too many unknown variables. There's a really famous bit of math called the Drake equation, which is an attempt to formalize uh, what kind of a probability you'd be looking at for how likely uh, life is in our universe. You have to make a lot of assumptions even to use that equation. And it gives you a range of probabilities. And on the low end, um, it surmises that there's probably, you know, several thousand, maybe tens of thousands, intelligent species spread throughout our observable universe. Whoa. Uh Whoa, that seems cool, but at that number, they'd be too far apart to ever contact each other. Mm. So that would mean there's like intelligent life that never gets to see each other because <laughs> okay. space is too big. And then on higher reasonable evaluations of that, you could think there might be, you know, tens of thousands of uh, intelligent species uh, in the Milky Way galaxy right now. So when you have an equation where there's lots of uncertainty, you get a really big range in outcomes. So we don't know the probability, but uh, most scientists would agree that it's it's likely that intelligent life is, uh, we're, we're certainly not the only case. Um, but it's also because space is so big, it's possible and maybe even likely that intelligent species never meet each other. Mike, here's kind of an existential question from me. If you had the chance to like contact an alien life form that was human-like in that it was intelligent, would what would you say to it slash would you contact it? I would not alone. There's too mm -hmm. much risk there. Um, even if something is comparable to intelligence in humans, it's still going to be very alien. And I want you to think about the difficulties that human cultures have had when they first encountered each other. And that's the same species, right? Yeah. And then what happens if you add some different level in biologic or cultural ability? What happens when humans meet cultures of chimpanzees or elephants? It hasn't gone mm -hmm. well for yeah. uh, chimpanzees or elephants. So... When you think about the possibility for a misunderstanding between alien, truly alien species, completely different uh, evolutionary paths, no, no common evolutionary ancestry, no common biology, um, would we even be able to communicate? Might take a while to figure out how to communicate. What if, <clears throat> you know, what if they communicate via <clears throat> a stream of neutrinos? <clears throat> and mm -hmm. they can't see or hear. And we have a hard time uh, detecting neutrinos. <clears throat> what if they, their consciousness offers operates on a dissimilar scale to ours? You know, a fly's nervous system is about four times as fast as ours. So they experience the world at a uh, as moving in slow motion. That's why it's hard to swat a fly. So what if you had that kind of a, a, a gap where this alien species conversed in a conversation that takes us an hour for them takes a second or 10 years. There are big variables in what it would take to successfully likely communicate with an intelligent alien species. And any one person would have uh, a, a very increased likelihood of screwing it up in a substantive <laughs> way and provoking the, first the point of hurting. interstellar war. Um, 
Yeah, I it's it's you're reminding me of the movie Amy Adams was in Arrival. Uh, yeah, based on one of my Arrival. favorite uh, short story sci-fi anthologies by Ted Shining. Oh. It's just absolutely incredible. Yeah, good film based on an even better story. Oh my gosh! Well, go read that, y'all. We've got five more minutes of the show, and so Mike, I think I'll throw you one more cue. That we've got so many, I might as well. I'm scrolling to find the one I've been wanting to ask you. Um, here we go. This is the one I wanted to end on. At Alora Johnson Marketing on Instagram asks, what aspect of outer space trips you out if you think too hard about it? I mean, the first time I read about black holes and time dilation... I got so dizzy, I had to lie down. Whoa. Whoa. Yeah. That would that's... have been uh, around 99. I started reading about that. And um, I remember, yeah, I like literally got disoriented trying to. <laughs> as I, was thinking I would it. do. Um, there's been some other things I've studied, like when I'll read a physics book and I'll just like, well, I like it. this doesn't make sense and this starts to make sense and it's like whoa this changes oh, the way you understand yeah. everything yeah um but scale is probably the one that sticks just I was gonna how say. big space is like at any technology we have today um even if we spent all of our global gdp on a spaceship it would take thousands of years to reach the closest star, our next door neighbor. Oh, um, MG. And so the scale of space is pretty vertigo inducing. I mean, the sun is really close by and it takes mm. light eight minutes to get here from the sun. <laughs> um, <laughs> So what, yeah, space is so point. big that when you look into the sky, you travel through time. And depending how far something away is determines how far you travel. So when you look at the sun, you travel eight minutes back in time. When you look at, say, a gas giant in our outer solar system, you can be looking an hour and a half, six hours, 12 hours Zooey into the past. Mama. And mm. when you look at the most distant stars visible with the naked eye, um centuries to millennia uh, back in time and then if <laughs> you get real? a telescope you can start looking hundreds of millions of years back in time and you get a really good telescope like a nasa scale telescope and you can look back to literally when we look at the cosmic microwave background radiation and you sample you take a microwave picture you are grabbing photons that were emitted the moment the universe became transparent to life or to light, 13.7 billion years ago. That photon's just been floating through space ever then until it hit your collection instrument. You are traveling back into time to the very beginning of our measurable, viewable, observable universe. Um, pretty trippy. I think the best way to end this episode is to read Caleb commented again and said 
Space is wild, yo. Space is wild, And yeah. if you are just now tuning in, don't worry. This and all the clips that are a part of this episode of The Cozy Robot Show will be uploaded to YouTube, and then several segments will be put on our socials, so you'll hear all about what we talked about today if you're just tuning in. But if you are just tuning in, this is... I'll, I'll catch you up to speed with Caleb's comment. Space is wild, yo. And don't forget, the most popular way people uh, experience this show is as a podcast. So people on Apple Podcasts and Spotify and other podcast platforms, our show comes out on Wednesdays. Uh, so you can subscribe there. And um, it's a really easy way to listen to what we're doing anytime you'd like. So you can you can watch videos, you can listen, whatever works for you. We've set it up that way. Uh, and we do appreciate uh, your coming along for the ride with us. Based on view counts, it sure seems like the midday uh, presentation of the show works better for people than the evening Woo! now that lockdowns have been re, uh, reduced. So you can also tune in live, as you know, because you're here now. But if you're not here now and you're listening <laughs> later, uh, we do go Light live at a time convenient to us for the summer uh, every other Tuesday. Monday. Today's Monday, not Tuesday. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, you were talking about space and light years and all kinds of things. No wonder and the days time is relative. scrambled. Time is relative. Uh, and this is probably a part of your uh, your outro, Mike, but I just want to say before we, we get to your outro that you can join the Cozy Robots if you liked this program and you want to learn more about other programs uh, by the Cozy Robots team and you want to be a part of a very kind and thoughtful community online, you can go to CozyRobots.com to sign up, become a patron, support us, and support a really cool community with lots of perks. And we just launched a new show I'm really excited about called Gaming with Grace. And so Grace does <laughs> Twitch streaming and uh, and live gaming, and it's a lot of fun. And then we all, we all game together um, on our Discord community, which is available at CozyRobots.com, like Grace said. And, of course... The Cozy Robot Show is brought to you by the most talented and supportive team in the entire world. So I'd like to thank our executive producers, Tanner Hearn and Victory Palmazano, our show's producers, Grace Vaughn and Greg Nordine, production support by Amy Hill, community management and co-host Grace Vaughn, music by Madison McCarg and Macy McCarg, design by Sydney Smith, motion graphic design Landon Satterfield, set design Jesse Lane Interiors, wardrobe stylist and craft services Jenny McCarg, I, of course, I'm uh, your co-host, Mike McCarg, and uh, thanks for joining us, and we can't wait to talk with you soon. Take care, friends. Bye, Cozy Robots. The Cozy Robot Show.